2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12 is where we will start today. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. Paul writing to his protege, Timothy, and giving him uh, tremendous words of wisdom that, of course, applies to all of us today, not just to Timothy, but uh, it's not a very long letter uh, in the New Testament. And, uh, it's something, though, that I think is very impactful. It's only a couple of pages in your Bible, only four chapters. But we want to read in chapter 3 and begin in verse 12. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. If you're going to live a godly life, it's not going to be popular. You just got to know that up front. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Most people that deceive others, it's because they're deceived themselves. But continue. Everybody say continue. When you see all this stuff happening around you, here's what you do. Continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. You know who brought you this truth. This is what Paul's telling Timothy. There's going to come all kinds of men, and they're going to be deceiving, and they're going to be seducers, and they're going to have all kinds of charisma, and they're going to wax worse and worse, and they're going to have all kinds of different gospels and messages. But continue in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of. In other words, there's been other areas of validation to confirm what I've taught you, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. It's the book that's going to save us. Through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture, everybody say all scripture, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. It's valuable. All of it is. Every bit of it, even the stuff you don't agree with. It's all good. It's valuable. It's profitable. Here's why. For reproof, for doctrine, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. That's where the value is. That the Word of God gives us doctrine. It gives us undeniable absolute truth to base your life on doctrine for reproof sometimes it's uncomfortable for correction for instruction in righteousness that's what makes it valuable not that it's comforting not that it's entertaining that's not where it's profitable it's for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction. Right? Here's why. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. He's going to equip you through the word of God, through this correction, through this instruction and in righteousness, through doctrine and reproof, so that you and I can live a life that honors our Savior. I want to speak this morning for a little bit on this subject, the value of originality, the value of of originality. You may be seated. Thank you so much for standing. My wife this past year um, in the midst of COVID had a significant birthday and so I wanted to uh, get her a significant gift 
And so an uh, older couple down the street from us put a little Ford uh, baby blue Mustang out in the driveway and put a for sale sign on it. It caught my attention. And um, so I went and uh, drove it and then caught my wife's attention. And she's like, did you see that Mustang? And I said, yeah, it looks so cute. And I didn't tell her what I was thinking, but she goes, I want to go try it out. So I said, okay. So we went and then she drove it and I was like, is she going to be able to drive this car? Because it did not have any power steering. And so you just, you fight with that steering wheel to turn it. And then it doesn't have power brakes either. So when you want to stop, you don't just stop. You like start thinking about it way in advance. And you put on the brakes and it kind of glides to a stop. And uh, so I thought, man, is my wife going? And she drove it just like a champ. Boy, she just loved it. She's like, this is amazing. I said, but it doesn't have air conditioning. She's like, who needs air conditioning? It was like June. And I was like, well, I don't know, honey. And she's like, oh, it's so cute. You know, and I said, well, we don't have any place to put it. We don't have a garage for it. We don't, you know, these people have kept it in a garage. It's so nice. And it's, he showed us all the original this and the original that. And so uh, she's like, yeah, I guess so. I said, it, it'd be hard for us with our lifestyle to be able to keep it as nice as they've kept it. And this car deserves a really good owner that can baby it. We just don't have the time to baby it, you know. And uh, so she's like, okay. So I talked around him and then I went and bought it to surprise her and so we surprised her and it was great and it was awesome we thought it was a 65 but when we did the research on the serial number we found out that it was a 64 and a half because when Ford Mustangs were first made the first one that came off the assembly line they built it on the chassis of an old Ford Falcon I don't how many of you old enough to remember the Ford Falcon only a few of us around folks (laughs) well the old Ford Falcon they took they had to try to keep up with all that GM was doing so Ford, under the leadership of Lee Iacocca, who was one of their head engineers at the time, he developed this, this Mustang design. Of course, we know it's been unbelievably successful. But they started making them in April of 1964. And so from April to August, they made a, a lot of Mustangs. And they're called 64 and a halfs because they were made early on. So they were the first Mustangs made. And then after that, uh, the 65s were made starting in August going forward. And of course, you know, the rest is history. Well, if you've got a 64 and a half, it's even more valuable because it's one of the first ones. So we ran the research on on the serial number and all that, and we found out that it was indeed a 64 and a half. It was made in the first week of May, and uh, I think like May 7th, it came off the assembly line in Dearborn. It was sold in Boston. So we learned all this stuff by just researching the serial number. It had an engine that was only for 64 and a half, and the guy that sold it to me thought it was a 65, so now it's a 64 and a half, so what I paid for it has like doubled or tripled in value just with having that information, that knowledge. So then we explored the possibility of putting in an under-the-dash air condition. And my good friend Eric Lutz, one of our wonderful missionaries here, missionaries, ushers. <laughs> He's sort of a missionary too. You've been to, where have we been? We've been to the Amazon, we've been to Haiti together. But he knows cars, he used to have a car lot back when he lived up in the cold, frozen north, but God delivered him and brought him to Florida, and so now he lives here in paradise. And uh, he knows cars. And so he said, Pastor, don't put an air condition in that car. I was like, yeah, but my wife really wants an air conditioning. She's thinking it'll keep it cool, you know, and all of that. Now, when we were looking at it, she didn't need an air conditioner. Isn't this funny how this happens? <laughs> but after we bought it, it was like, oh, it'd be nice to get an air conditioner. I was like, why do you want an air conditioner? And she's like, well, the kids don't want to ride with me. Oh, our kids are just like, we don't want to ride with mom in that Mustang. It doesn't have an air conditioner. And my daughter was so put out when she saw the crank on the window. She was like, what is this? Where is the button? 
And I said, you, you do this. You use the elbow that God has given you and the strength in your right arm and you roll the window down. She's like, this is horrible. This is the worst. <laughs> oh. And so the kids are all like, oh, we don't want to ride with mom and she doesn't have an air conditioner. She's like, I want the kids to ride with me. I want to put an air conditioner in. Then I talked to my buddy who's an attorney in town that used to own a whole bunch of old cars, had them in garages all over, Orlando, all over Melbourne, Orlando. He's finally got rid of them all because they're all like kids and they're all got to be baby and you got to get parts for them and blah, blah, blah. And he finally ran out of patience. But he knows a lot about them. He says this to me. He says, David, don't put an air conditioner in that car because the value of that car is not in its functionality, it's in its originality. And when he said that, I was like, Joe, you're a preacher and you don't even realize it. I mean, for me, maybe just because I am a preacher, I try to, you know, in my mind, it just, everything runs through scripture. And I haven't been able to get away from that phrase. The value is not in its functionality. There's a bunch of cars with electric window. There's a bunch of cars with a power steering and power brakes. There's only a few cars made on the chassis of a Ford Falcon in May of 1964. Maybe I just like it because it's close to my own age. I don't know, maybe. <laughs> I'm even older than it is. <laughs> but the value is in its originality, not in its functionality. Now, I've been thinking about that, and I started reading the other day at Timothy, and I thought, this is what Paul was telling Timothy. There's going to be a lot of newfangled things come down the pipe, but you better hold fast to what I've taught you. The value is not in the functionality of the gospel. The value is in the originality. The value of this church is not in who pastors it or, or, or the building or the programs that we have. And I'm thankful for all of them. But the value is that we preach what Peter preached on the day of Pentecost more than 2,000 years ago. The value is in the originality, oh hallelujah, that you can still know that what the Bible taught us all of those years ago, it is still applicable for us today. You don't outgrow this word. It's not some fad that dissipates in time, but you and I are a part of a beautiful, wonderful church because we've got the truth. We've got the gospel of Jesus Christ. We still believe today what they believed in. And I'm sure there's other churches you can go to that will give you more bells and whistles. You don't have to crank the window down. But folks, there's nothing like being able to get on your knees and get a hold of God through intercessory prayer. There's nothing like knowing there's power in the name of Jesus. I said there's power in the name of Jesus. Jesus said, these things cometh not out but by prayer and fasting. When the disciples wanted to know, hey, we just named and claimed it and said, be gone. And it didn't happen. But yet when you prayed, uh, something happened. Why? 
And he said, they cometh not but by prayer and fasting. In other words, you're not going to be able to get away from the basics. The only way you and I are going to have power in God is we got to deny this flesh. And there's no way, ladies and gentlemen, that we can microwave this gospel and make it palatable to a postmodern society. You and I have got to realize we've got the truth. Hallelujah. We believe the word of God. If they baptized in the name of Jesus in the book of Acts, we ought to baptize in the name of Jesus in 2020. If they spoke in tongues in the book of Acts, you and I can still speak in tongues today because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This past week, a lady by the name of Amy Coney Barrett was confirmed as the newest member of the United States Supreme Court. She's known as an originalist, even though she will be the youngest member of the court it's hard for me to imagine that people are on the Supreme Court that are younger than I am. That doesn't seem right. My whole life it's been this collection of old people. And we were these law school students that were studying and trying to get wisdom from these old people and now I'm older than the newest member of the U.S. Supreme Court. But her judicial philosophy earns her the title of an originalist. She believes the original constitution as written should be interpreted by the judges and that the court doesn't have the power to operate sort of as a super legislature passing new policy from the bench, but rather as interpreters of the original constitution as written. Judge Barrett went to law school at Notre Dame. She clerked for Justice Antonin Scalia of the Supreme Court, who was also an originalist. I had the good fortune to study under Scalia at Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland, the summer of 1998. And this concept of interpreting the Constitution as originally stated came up often. Judge uh, Scalia was very personable. He would teach, and then we would all go out afterwards and eat, and he was very personal. And so we were able to have many informal conversations with him and his judicial philosophy it came up often because a lot of the students that I was a part of were from Ivy League schools that didn't have that same judicial philosophy so he would explain it and he talked oftentimes about how decisions are made based on judicial philosophy for example when Roe versus Wade was decided in 1972 it was a departure from original interpretation. Roe v. Wade, as you well know, is the case that legalized abortion in America. It was decided based on a belief that people have a right to privacy. Now, that's not an enumerated right in the Constitution. As Scalia talked about why if he was on the court at that time, he would have not voted for it because it was not an enumerated right. In other words, the Constitution doesn't specifically say you have a right to privacy. Now, it may imply it in other ways, but it's not an enumerated right. So an originalist or a contextual interpreter of the law, Supreme Court judge interpreting the U.S. Constitution, looks at it in terms of the context or the original enumerated rights that are in the Constitution. So a person who is an originalist would vote against the creation of a constitutional right that's being created by nine justices because it's not a stated or an enumerated constitutional right. Now, on the other hand, activist judges believe that the Constitution should be interpreted in light of modern culture and popular opinion. This type of interpretation allows for nine justices to create new laws, and we've been seeing that happen now for some 50, 60 years. And when I was with Liberty Council, one of our cases, which was a Ten Commandments case, we were representing three counties in the, in the state of Kentucky. I almost said the country of Kentucky. It pretty much is its own country, but <laughs> Mercer County was the one we focused on, and it was about the Ten Commandments being put up in city municipality buildings, and we had other historical documents around it in the ACLU 
sued these counties because they had the Ten Commandments and, and uh, state buildings. And we were joined with another case that came out of Texas where the uh, monument of the Ten Commandments was on the state grounds in Austin, Texas. And the attorney general from uh, Texas was arguing that case. They joined our cases together to, to look at this through the First Amendment and decide whether or not these Ten Commandments on state grounds was a violation of what's called the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law establishing religion, nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So all of these cases that have to do with the First Amendment is always because of the balance between the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. The Establishment Clause says the government can't have a state-run religion. We came out of England. We saw what England did with the Church of England. We didn't want to have a government that was a state-run religion. So they established this Establishment Clause saying that the government can't be its own religion. That's oftentimes misinterpreted as separation of church and state, which I'm sure you've heard. I'm going fast because I don't want this to be a legal seminar, but here I am in the middle of it. <laughs> the free exercise clause is that we have a right to hold on to our sincerely held religious beliefs. So all of these different cases is, a, is the balance and the, and the friction and the tension between the establishment clause and the free exercise clause. So my partner, Matt Staver, sister Amy and I were there front and center at the Supreme Court. It was amazing. My partner, Matt Staver, is making the oral arguments and he's saying that the Ten Commandments is more than just a religious document. It's a historical document. It is a moral document. It's a legal document. And as he's speaking, Ruth Bader Ginsburg says, uh, Counselor, have you even read the first five commandments? Of course, he recognized that as a rhetorical question. He waited for her to finish. And she said, not only do they suggest a religious nature. Now, I would say that it's certainly more than a suggestion because it's the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions. She said, not only are they religious in nature, but they suggest exclusive worship. Exactly. When she said that, I wanted to say hallelujah. I thought that's wonderful. She didn't see it that way. She saw it as being that's what violates the establishment clause because it is not just religious in nature, but it suggests exclusive worship. So here's what's happening. This is what's going on between conservative liberal judges and Supreme Court and federal judges and state judges and wherever they're at. There is this tension because the uh, activist judges are judges that think that the Constitution should be interpreted in light of social norms and popular opinion and, and where the culture is going. All of those judges, they will look at something like this and they'll see the Constitution, which was based on our traditional Judeo-Christian values, and they'll say, okay, that was good for a time, but that's not necessarily what's going to guide us now. We see that as a problem, not as a treasure. But an originalist over here doesn't see the Constitution as a problem, doesn't see Judeo-Christian values as a problem. We see it as a treasure. And so an activist judge has a philosophy that, that doesn't want to just look at the original uh, Constitution, wants to look at it in the context of uh, modern, postmodern society and, and the norms of our day and age. And so that's where you have this tension that goes back and forth. Now, the reason the court, now traditionally it wasn't like this, but the reason the court has become so politicized, in fact now, and this is where you see this happening because when Amy Coney Barrett, who's an originalist, got put in, she, and she uh, filled the term, of course, of, of Ginsburg and took her place because Ginsburg passed away, the balance of the Supreme Court has shifted Okay, and so now this is where you hear the Democrats saying, 
well, if we get in power, which is the White House control the Senate and the House, we're going to pack the court. Now, here's what packing the court means. There's nothing in the Constitution specifically that says you can only have nine justices. You can have 29 justices if you want. But we have, for 200 plus years, had nine justices. And the only time it was ever even threatened was under FDR, Franklin D. Roosevelt, who's the most powerful president we ever had, got elected four times. After that, they said, whoo, this is a little scary. Balance of powers, you can only be elected twice. But when FDR was, was president, he uh, had control of the House, had control of the Senate for most of his four terms, not all of it, but most of it. And he was passing all of these different laws and agencies and creating all of these different things to get us out of the Depression and so forth. And so uh, everybody was just signing on, and he was uh, FDR, and he was president, and he had a, a lot of control in the houses and Senate and everything. But the Supreme Court said, no, nah, we don't think that. Nah. They start, the Supreme Court started seeing problems because they started seeing that these things don't have, these, these, these programs don't have stopgap measures. And these programs are not necessarily, they may help us out of the Depression, but 80 years from now, they may bankrupt the nation. Hello, here we are 80 years later. And so they could, they could continue in perpetuity. So they were like, they were saying, no, that's on the Constitution, that's on the Constitution, that's on the Constitution. And FDR got mad. FDR may have been in a wheelchair, but he was a powerful man. He said, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to pack the Supreme Court. You nine guys up there that think you're so powerful, guess what? You may be 15 next year. And he threatened to pack the court. Now, it had never been done before, never has been done since. And he didn't have to do it then because if you'll read... We studied this in law school. After FDR threatened to pack the court, the next six cases, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of FDR. Yes, we think the president has the power. Yes, we think that's wonderful. Yes, all oh, that's the Constitution says. Blah, 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 blah. You know what that was all about? That was all about them not wanting their power to be diluted with a whole bunch of more judges. So now you've got the judicial branch has become so politicized. Now the reason it's become so politicized is because they've gotten further and further away from an originalist interpretation of the Constitution. The further you get away, so you saw this in the confirmation of, uh, of uh, Amy Coney Barrett. You saw that in the, uh, what was it, the Senate Select Committee thing that confirms. All the Democrats, they didn't even vote. They just left. They say, we're not even going to vote. And, and, and then it went to the Senate, and then the Democrats voted, but then they walked out. And you're like, what's all that about? Well, here's what that's about. The balance and power in the Supreme Court has now shifted. Now, here's the code language for it. Because when they asked Joe Biden whether or not if he gets to be president, he's going to pack the court, he wouldn't answer for a while and answer for a while. Because it's, it's never 200 plus years. But there is this threat that's on the table because of what happened with Amy Coleman Barrett. Now, they say, oh, it's because it was so close to the election. It has nothing to do with how close it was to the election. It has to do that she has a total different judicial philosophy than Ruth Bader Ginsburg does. So the power has shifted now back to the originalists. So it's not a political speech. I'm just telling you what's happening in our legal system. So with that being done, <laughs> they, they say, are you going to pack the court? Now here's the code language. And I've heard, I've heard Joe Biden say this a few times. He says... Well, we're going to have a committee, we're going to appoint, we're going to investigate, we're going to study, because it's getting out of whack. Have you heard out of whack? He says out of whack a number of times. Here's what out of whack means. Out of whack means that these laws that we have become comfortable with, such as Roe v. Wade, and all of these other laws that activist judges have passed, 
are now in danger because the power of the court has shifted to an originalist mentality. So it's out of whack. Well, guess what, ladies and gentlemen? A lot of people think that East Wind Pentecostal Church is out of whack. Now, here's why they think we're out of whack. Because we still believe what the Bible says. We still believe you ought to be baptized in Jesus' name. We still believe you ought to live a holy lifestyle. And people are saying you're out of whack. You need to get along. You need to interpret the word of God through modern social norms. But we say, nay, nay, nay. Here's what we say. If it's in the Bible, we believe it. Hallelujah. Woo, hallelujah. Yes, I want power windows. Yes, I want power brakes. Yes, it's nice to have push button and it's nice to have AC. But here's what's most important of all. It's most important that we have an understanding of what must we do to be saved. And a lot of people will look at churches today just like they do on the judicial branch and they say, well, you know, the Constitution was written so long ago. The Bible was written so long ago. Do you really think it's applicable for us today? Why? We're so much more educated now. We're so much more intelligent. All your answers are in the Word of God. The Bible says there's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And when you substitute the Word of God for your own personal opinion, you are running the risk of making a bad decision. Because anytime you use a, a, a subjective standard, which is what we are as human beings, our subjective standard, when we use our own opinions more than the Word of God, we're using a subjective standard to replace an objective standard. And that's always more risky because all of your own feelings, your own emotions, and everything else comes involved. So you've got to have an objective standard. You've got to have a rule of law that stands apart from everything else that everybody else is saying. Because things are going to come up and down, and this one's going to be in charge, and Republican, and Democrat, and back and forth. But you and I have got to have an objective standard, and you've got to say, I'm basically in my life on the word of God hallelujah if the Bible says it I believe it his word cannot lie mm. and so even if we look at the church in America we see that the church in America is in trouble and after COVID is over they estimate that one out of three churches will never open back up again why is that? Because churches have become less and less, I'm trying to choose my word carefully, they've become less and less relevant for helping people deal with the sin issue in their life. We got all kinds of social programs. We got all kind of gatherings where the Silver Eagles, Golden Eagles can meet and have tea and go to the Holy Land experience. And we got singles programs for people that are single that want to meet somebody. And we got programs for the children over there because people want to know, what can the church do for me? What can God do for me? How can you make my life better? How can you help me with my business? How can you entertain my children while I go to church? What can the church do for me? That's a focus more on functionality. What can you do for me? What is the function that you will provide for me? And we want to do all of those things. But that's not what makes us valuable. 
Our value is because we believe the apostles' doctrine. And sometimes it hurts, and sometimes it steps on your toes, but it's what'll get you to heaven. Jesus, I want to go to heaven. I want to go to heaven. And as churches have moved more and more away from the word of God to please people, they have lost their moral authority. And now a person goes to church and they say, I just don't know why. I just keep trying to struggle with sin. I just can't get over sin. I, I want to go where I can feel the presence of God. I want to go where I can feel the presence of God. Here's what makes people want to say, what makes your church different than all the other churches? Here's your answer. Here's why East Wind Pentecostal Church is different than every other church on the block around here. Here's the difference. The value is in our originality. We preach what the apostles preach. They prayed for the sick in Jesus' name and the sick recovered. They cast out devils in Jesus' name. They baptized in Jesus' name. Our value is not in who we are. Our value is in who he is. It's not in our functionality. And we, we want to do all these things, and we're going to continue to. But our value as believers is in the absolute authority of the Word of God, in its originality, not its functionality. The Word of God, Paul told Timothy, is profitable or valuable not for its comfort or its convenience, but for correction, for instruction for reproof, for doctrine. It bothers me in this postmodern society of 2020 that doctrine doesn't matter to people anymore. I'm going to go to that church because it's close. I'm going to go to that church because I like their kids program. I'm going to go to that church because I like the building. I'm going to go to that church because I like the new seats. I'm going to go to that church because the pastor's good looking. Yes, we have all of those things. <laughs> I'm just playing. But it matters what we believe. Oh, I feel like I'm preaching to somebody. Maybe it's on the internet. It's important that we believe what we believe. Yes, we want to build medical clinics and orphanages, and we're going to continue to do that. But our value is in the fact that we believe the apostolic doctrine of the book of Acts. Our value is in the fact that we adhere to the word of God. And the power that we have is not in our personality. Our power, our authority is because we are an originalist. We believe the word of God, even the parts we don't like. We believe as Peter preached in Acts chapter 2, you must repent of your sins. I'm talking about good old-fashioned repentance, where you actually experience sorrow, and you shed tears. Not this newfangled repentance, where it's microwaved and it's the equivalent of reading a poem. I'm talking about old-fashioned Psalms 51. David on his face repentance created me a clean heart and renewed me a right spirit. I'm talking about baptism in Jesus' name. 
Not just any old way that suits your fancy. I'm talking about baptism in the name of Jesus. I'm talking about an authority that comes when you take on the name of Jesus. Woo, there is power in the name. Our victory has a name and it's Jesus. It may not be popular, but it's Jesus that saved me from my sins. It's Jesus that delivered me from my addictions. It's Jesus that's coming back for a church. Power in the name of Jesus. I told him in the first service about a friend of mine in town that's on the board of a large denominational church here in town. And he got the revelation of Jesus named baptism. And he told some of his friends that were on the board there at the church that he's part of. And they said, well, we'll baptize you in Jesus' name. And he said, no, I want to be, I want to be baptized by someone who's got conviction about the name of Jesus. And he said, there's only one guy I know of like that. And that's David Myers at pastors at that time, First Pentecostal Church. So he called me up and he said, will you baptize me in Jesus' name? I said, you just tell me where and when. He said, I want to get baptized by somebody that's got conviction about the name. I'm going to tell you what, folks. This world is looking for people that got a conviction about the word of God. We're not just going through the motions. We're not just gathering here like some sort of social club. We're not here to play bingo. We're here to say, I want to be saved. I want my kids to be saved. I want to go to heaven. And I believe the Lord is coming back. And I want all of that. But more than anything, I want to go to heaven. I want to go to heaven. Yes, it would be easier to just say, you receive the Holy Ghost by osmosis. You just go to sleep one night and you say a prayer and when you wake up, you're filled with his spirit. Oh, that would be so much easier. We could just pack the court with that philosophy. Everybody would come and be a part of it. You just believe on the Lord and you're somehow magically saved. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that when they received the Holy Ghost, read it, Acts 2, read it, Acts 10, Acts 19. When they received the Holy Ghost, they spoke in tongues. Oh, well, that's what they did back then. They don't have to do it now that way. I had a conversation with a lady one time that was a professor in Notre Dame. And she said, uh, why, why do you believe so strongly in the message of Peter? She said, you do know he was the first pope, don't you? And I said, oh, yes, yes. And I said, you believe what the Pope says, don't you? She said, oh, yes. I said, we're, we're in agreement. I said, how come you don't believe what Pope Peter preached in Acts chapter 2? She said, what verse? I said, when he said, you must repent of your sins. Verse 38, be baptized in the name of Jesus. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Oh, she said, Sonny, I know what you're talking about now. Don't be messing with that stuff. I said, that's too late. I've already messed with it. It's good. (laughs) 
And I said, I'm going to tell you what, the very next verse, verse 39 says, for this promise is unto you and to your children and all them that are far off, even as the many as the Lord our God shall call. We're a long ways from Jerusalem, but I believe God is still calling and I believe God's calling you. And she said, do you think I could receive it? And I said, absolutely. And we stepped down to that big cathedral and stood over in the garden and prayed in Jesus' name. And an 83-year-old nun that's a professor at Notre Dame was filled with the Holy Ghost with the evidence. I'm speaking in tongues. Why? Because if it's in the Bible, it's good for us today. It's for whosoever will. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Woo. Hmm. Stand to your feet. I'm, I'm not done, but I'm quitting. Mm. God, I feel the Holy Ghost in this place. Say, Pastor, what's the value in being an originalist? There's a lot of things, but let me leave you with three. Number one, you can know that you're saved when you follow the teachings of the first church of the book of Acts. Because it's like this in anything. The further you get away from the original source, the less reliable it is. So if you want to know, what must I do to be saved? Man has a lot of opinions, but man's opinions is not going to be what saves you. It's going to be the word of God. You don't have to wake up every day and wonder if you're saved or not. Number two, you're less likely to make wrong decisions when you're an originalist. Roe v. Wade decision was made when the justice that wrote the majority decision, Harry Blackman, locked himself into the library of Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. He explained the medical science that would govern the decision in his legal opinion. He studied it and researched it, and they wrote their decision based on a three-trimester system and what they had knowledge of at the time of what takes for place in the first trimester and what takes place in the second trimester. It was based on faulty medical understanding because 50 years later, we know a lot more about what happens and things happen, the development, of, it all happens early on. They didn't have that knowledge at that time and a case was decided based on modern interpretation of the knowledge we had of medicine at the time. Why the case is going to have to be revisited. Whether society likes it or not, the case has got to be redecided. Because now medical research has shown us so much more that they couldn't, they didn't have to make a bad decision in 72. They could have gone back to the original constitution and said, the right to privacy is not in there. Or they could have gone further back to the word of God. And David said, he knew me in my mother's womb. She cut out a lot. Didn't have to go through all them years of thinking the earth was flat. Now some people have gone back to it. All you got to do is go to the Bible. The Bible said he sits upon the circle of the earth 
All you got to do is stick with the script. It's in the Word of God. You're more likely to have a good decision if you stick with the original script. But more than that, the value of originality over functionality is the rarity of it. Oh yeah, most cars are going to beat that poor little old blue Mustang off the line. It's lucky if it just gets from here to our house and back. And there's a lot more cars that are more comfortable. But there's not many cars that can say they came off the assembly line and all the parts are still original over 50 years ago. The rarity of it is what gives it value. Now, spiritually speaking, just to be rare for the purpose of being exclusive is not necessarily what determines salvation. The value is in the scriptural teaching of Jesus in Matthew 7, 14. He said, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life and few there be that find it. Enter ye in, he says this in verse 13, at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction and many there be which go therein. So chances are, if everyone's doing it, it's not the right thing to do. There's value in being an originalist because a lot of folks are going to take the bait of a more convenient gospel and lose the power of the original doctrine. But there's going to be some folks that say, I don't care if grandma and granddaddy don't agree with it. I don't care if Uncle Ernie, I don't care if I'm not popular at Thanksgiving. Even so do we speak, Paul said, not as pleasing men, but pleasing God, which trieth our hearts. So for those of you that are watching by internet, does your church teach the truth? Does your church teach the New Testament plan of salvation? Because in the end, being saved is all that matters. I must be saved. For above all else, I must be saved. And Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. He understood the value of originality. Even Paul said, after the way which they call heresy, so worship I, the God of our fathers, believe in all things which were written in the law and in the prophets. And Jesus said, for verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. You know what he was saying? I fulfilled all the law. I fulfilled all the commandments. But it doesn't stop there. That's just the starting point. 
That's just where we start. This is just the beginning. Yeah, we believe the word of God, but we can build upon it. We can show mercy and love and we can build upon. Original understanding and that's what God's calling us to do more than just go through the motions. He's looking for a bride. And this is why I feel such a burden to preach this message because I believe we're getting close to the second coming of the Lord and God is looking for a church of people that are called out, separated unto him. He's looking for a church that is without spot or wrinkle. And so the question for all of us today is will you, feel, will you fully commit and will you follow the word of God in its entirety? Will you embrace not just the comfort, but the correction of the Word of God. I say to you today, with all the love that I can muster, let God mold you into a vessel of honor. Let God be the God of every aspect of your life. Come on, get up on the potter's wheel. Come on, he's still trying to mold us and make us. Would you lift your hands now all over this building? And I wonder if you would lift your voice and would you begin to talk to the Lord? Here I am, God. I see, Lord, your word. I know you have a plan for my life. And Lord, I'm not gonna just live by my own opinions. I'm gonna say, God, what does your word say? If you're in this building today, you've not repented of your sins, been baptized in the name of Jesus, or been filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in tongues, I wanna invite you to come forward right now and stand around this altar. Maybe there's some things you got to make right right now. And you say, Lord, I've been trying to do some things on my own, but right now I feel that God is leading me and drawing me. Come on. You're not going to go wrong embracing all of the Scripture. Come on, we're not going to just pick out parts that we like. We're going to say, Lord, I want your word to correct me. I want it to change me, Lord. I want you to create in me a right heart and a clean spirit. God bless you today in Jesus' name.